When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So from Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So I am John Plotz, and we have actually a most unusual kind of guest today because we're being unusually contemporary. So I'm very pleased to welcome Nir Ayal, who is the Henry Rutgers Professor of Ethics and the Director of the Center for Population Level Bioethics at Rutgers University. Nir is also the lead author of a striking recent article in what is actually, I have to say, one of my father's favorite journals, the Journal of Infectious Diseases. So the article, co-authored with Harvard's Mark Lipsitch and Peter Smith, is called Human Challenge Studies to Accelerate Coronavirus Vaccine Licensure. And if that's not revelatory enough, I should say there's a recent interview with him, which I highly recommend, in the prestigious journal Nature with this explanatory title, should scientists infect healthy people with the coronavirus to test vaccines? So, Nir, welcome. I know that you're only doing this because my beloved friend Leah Price made you do it, but I really appreciate your coming on nonetheless. Now it's because you're a beloved friend, John. Oh. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. So, Nir, um, can I just start the ball rolling by asking you to tell us about this article, since it only came out on, I think, March 30th. I doubt our listeners know much about it yet. So, so set it up for us. Sure. So, it is very important to accelerate finding a vaccine that works for a coronavirus um, as soon as we can, with projections of up to 20 million people dead this year alone. If we accelerate it by a month or two months and we get earlier out of the bind that we are currently at between killing our old people and, and devastating the economy, then we save maybe many millions of lives. And we came up with a proposal for how to accelerate that process. Um, the most time-consuming part of testing vaccines is the so-called efficacy testing. After you're done with uh, the initial safety testing and checking that there is any response in the immune system, you move to checking if the vaccine actually works, if it stops people who are exposed to the virus from getting infected. And the way that's usually done is you give thousands and thousands of people either the vaccine that you're trying to check or some control, perhaps placebo, perhaps another vaccine, and you see if months later after presumably even though everybody's trying to isolate themselves etc there was more infection in the arm that did not get the vaccine that you're checking that's a good sign that this vaccine works that it's efficacious that it stops the infection from occurring okay but, so near just to stop you there so that is the class so the classic trial breaks down into a safety phase which is indispensable but you're saying is relatively short in which you establish that the vaccine is, you know, not going to cause people to drop dead immediately or cause some other bad, you know, bad side effect. Mm -hmm. And then once you're past that, 
which you're saying can be relatively quick, you enter into what is potentially a much longer period in which you give a bunch of people the vaccine and then you just send them out blind in the world becomes your laboratory at that point. So let's say you have a thousand people, 500 of them get the vaccine, 500 don't, and you just see of those 500, did a lower number in the wild get it than get coronavirus than the 500 other people who got a placebo instead? Yeah, it may actually be closer to maybe 5,000 and 5,000. Yes. Okay. That could take months because everybody is doing what you and I are now doing, which is hiding in their homes and trying not to get any exposure. So you really need for a lot of them so that it's meaningful and you can actually base credible science on it to make the mistake and get exposed at some point. Right. And then you can, with assurance, say this works. We propose a much shorter alternative to that phase, to that time-consuming phase of efficacy testing. And should I tell you about what we yes, propose? Yes, that sounds okay. great. Totally clear so far. So now you have, a, you have a way to replace that in the wild period with something else. So instead of in the wild, you could expose people artificially to coronavirus. You would get results very soon thereafter. You don't need this big, big, big group of people. It could be maybe 100 people. You don't need these many months of waiting and the doubt about whether it will even ever reach a conclusion that you have with the standard efficacy testing. But what you have done is you exposed people deliberately to coronavirus, which is a virus that is currently killing so many people and for which we don't have a cure. So doing that initially raises a big ethical question. Thankfully, I think that there are excellent answers as to why this is perfectly ethical. Okay. So, let, so Nir, let me stop you right there. So that's, that sounds totally clear. So just to be clear, has this idea of exposing people to the very disease that you're trying to protect them from ever been proposed before with earlier diseases? Yes. Uh, we do challenge trials. So challenge trials means you challenge them by exposing them to the pathogen that you're checking. Right. We, this is how we come up with uh, the seasonal flu vaccine. We try to develop uh, countermeasures for typhoid, for malaria, for other diseases. Historically, uh, some of the greatest advances and greatest ethical abuses in the history of medicine happened when people were sometimes exposed to very deadly vaccines. We believe in this case, um, you could do it in a way that is ethically initially very concerning, but eventually, once you think about it enough, actually something that is ethically fairly unobjectionable. Okay, so you mentioned um, objectionable stories of the past, and I'm sure we'll get to them, but you also mentioned seasonal flu. The reason that the challenge trials are seasonal flu are okay is that fatality rates are so low that it doesn't really raise any eyebrows. Is that, is that the reason? Or Yes, usually when people justify doing that, basically taking a healthy person who yeah. doesn't need any vaccine or treatment or, or certainly not viruses and exposing them to a virus to check if some vaccine works, that is not very risky in its own right. It's not a very deadly virus. It's not commonly deadly and things of that sort. We are trying to rely on a different justification in this case because this is a deadly virus. So Nir, so I'm, I'm with you on your explanation of how it differs from something like a seasonal flu challenge. So say more about the logic that you think underpins using it for this potentially deadly disease. 
A major difference is that in this case, there aren't just risks, which can be minimized. There are also benefits to the participants and specifically benefits of the very same category as the risks. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. possible that because of the very special circumstances of the current pandemic, people will avoid risk of the worst scenarios of coronavirus disease if they participate in the trial more mm. than they would outside the tr any trial and more than they would under a standard efficacy trial. It's also very likely that we would have fewer adverse events, you know, bad medical outcomes under this trial, which has only maybe 100 participants than under a standard efficacy trial, which has maybe 10,000. I see. So you're saying not only you're saying there's a cost in lives in terms of the longer duration of those studies, but you're also saying that because those other studies involve more people than this study would, even within the study itself, the costs would be lower for this kind of challenge. Yes. And, and the most central point is maybe the first point, which is that per participant, it may be a good gamble, if you will, to participate in the trial. They are improving their prospects of not dying from coronavirus if they participate in the trial, compared to either not participating in anything and compared to participating in a standard efficacy trial, which is the main competition here. How, how so? It's, it has to do with something that was not true for the other diseases for which um, child trials were usually done. It is. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the fact that so many of us would get exposure and potentially infection anyhow. This is a pandemic that, according to some models, is likely to infect eventually maybe 50% of the world population. Right. The world is a big place. Uh, there would be different areas. Uh, the outliers would have maybe significantly above that. Right. So if the trialists select very carefully which area to home it on, and home in on and go for areas where people at that point and in future points are expected to have a lot of infections, then first, the difference between the near certainty of getting infected outside the trial and the complete certainty inside the trial is not so dramatic. Yes. But also, if they stay outside the trial, they're likely, if in the worst case scenarios, if things go really badly, yeah. they're likely not to have the care that they need. We're going to recommend to trialists to recruit only young and healthy people whose risk of the bad scenarios is anyhow low, but if they want this assurance, um, in the worst case scenario, going to have a place in an intensive care unit. I'm talking to you now from um, outside New York City and New Jersey. I'm not sure that I could get a place in an intensive care unit if I needed one right now. That right. for them might be quite rationally more significant benefit than changing primarily the timing at which they get infected much more than the probability yeah. that they get infected. So Nir, this is really interesting. I'd like to, can we just sort of dig down on this as a philosophical question? I wanna make sure I understand what you're saying. So you're saying, I think it goes without saying here, but maybe I'd like to hear you say it, that you are assuming volunteers who are willing to take part in such a trial like you're not going to there's not going to be any co-opted populations people are going to positively opt in to do it Absolutely. And saying, so so yeah. i mean that's maybe worth just underwriting uh, 
So one of the huge differences between some of the historical abuses and how we nowadays do challenge trials, not just in this case, but also you know, seasonal flu and malaria, et cetera, is, and especially in this case, I would say, because this is you know, a big deal, the quality of the informed consent would have to be very high. We do not want children or you know, prisoners or yes. recruits or the researchers' own students, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, it's gotta be very, very voluntary and very informed. Yes. So you're absolutely right. And that is part of the justification. So okay. the fuller story is something like, given that it's a balance of benefits and risks that I think, and we could dig more into this, um, is, is one that is not clearly awful for the individual. Who are we to stop the individual from making a choice that is right. legit, helpful, uh, and comes with their own full comprehension and voluntariness? Yeah, so, so this is what I wanted to, to say more about. So thanks for clarifying that. The, the, so the question is, so it's not enough that people are willing to sign up for it. You also, you feel that you have to make, if you will, a kind of two-ply argument. One ply is, they are consenting to do it, they're choosing to do it, whether through altruism or self-interest or whatever, they are making that choice. But the second level is you have to believe that the choice itself can be kind of legitimated rationally, like apart from their own sub subjective decision to do it. Totally right. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll, I'll say it, I'll say it in a, and, kind of what you said concisely in a slightly longer way. Um, there are two separate requirements in the list of, there are some canonical lists of what you expect in a research study. One of them has to do with informed consent. Another one has to do with the balance of risks and benefits for the individual, for what society is gaining enough from this study to justify any negative balance for the individual. Right. In this case, I think that this balance looks pretty good. It's not like those cases where you're starting to say, oh my God, there would be huge social benefits. And for some reason, this person is willing to sacrifice themselves, but it would be utter sacrifice. There is you know, the certainty that we would kill this person or maim this person for right. no good reason for their help. In this case, actually, turns out it's, it might be overall beneficial to the person, certainly could not be highly, highly prospectively bad so, for the person. So can I, just within that context, Nir, can I ask a hypothetical? And I really don't know the facts here, so you can correct me on the facts, but it, what about the argument that said, the people for whom it would be beneficial here would tend to be people who, for other reasons, would lack decent healthcare. Now, you just mentioned you couldn't get to the ICU, but let's mm -hmm. just say, hypothetically, there's, you near with a really good healthcare program, which means you probably could get an ICU bed. And then there's another near two, a near near, who doesn't have a good healthcare plan. He's only on Medicaid. And he feels that without doing this trial, he doesn't know whether he would get ICU. So do, do you see what I'm asking? Could there be like a utilitarian bias there, which would select for people who felt that, man, if I don't get into this study, then I'm going to be, you know, left out in the cold. Yeah. You know, the, so I think you're right that there is this possibility. I think that the world is a big place. And if trialists have the budget, and I think they must have this, must be given the budget in this case, because our economy really depends on, on getting this uh, done. Yes. If the trialists have the budget to jet 
around the world, the only, you know, just the hundred people they need in a very secure uh, from infection and everything else uh, flights around this trial, they could really select people who are the best candidates from an ethical standpoint. And perhaps indeed, homing in on people whose plight comes from injustices would be exploitative. If the plights are very, very severe, maybe in some sense they wouldn't have any choice except to participate in the trial. And um, although that's a little harder to press if you're talking about young, healthy people who, who are not infected. So it's not quite the same thing as telling somebody who already has a disease and their last hope is to participate in the, tr in the trial that you yeah. will only get them into some trial which is bad for them or whatever. So, well, but the, the point is um, you don't need to home in on these people whose plight comes from injustices such as uninsurance, underinsurance in this country. Who knows, in a few months, maybe Stockholm will be the world epicenter of infections. People there are insured. You could select if you want for high socioeconomic status people, for maybe in terms of comprehension, maybe yeah. it's better to enroll only university students. And I'm optimistic that we would have that crowd. Uh, since we published the article, we have been inundated with uh, emails from people who want to participate in those trials. They don't understand that we are not trialists. We're just dudes who wrote an article. Yeah. Uh, and we've been, some friends have been collating those. Uh, the friends' names are Josh Morrison and Kate Wharton. They have uh, over 800 names now. And I've anecdotally kind of, I sometimes looked at the, you know, details that people write us uh, before I forwarded the names. And uh, they are, you know, often students from the best universities in North America and Europe. There are, it's a famous disease. A lot of people might volunteer without having the strife that you're describing. And the trialists might um, be instructed to select against people whose plight comes from that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was just playing through the ironies in my head where you might have a situation that the result is that people get excluded from the trial precisely because they are in socioeconomically uh, compromised situations. But I, I take your point. It's, uh, it, it is an interesting question. You know, if there is a question as to, you know, the, sometimes people say, you know, the one worse thing than being exploited is not being exploited, right? So right. Uh, are right. we helping uh, the workers in, uh, you know, Bangladesh? When By we, not buying the t-shirt, yeah. Exactly, and then right. yeah. they don't have a job. It goes to yeah. China. So the ethics around exploitation is a complex thing. Uh, I didn't want to commit one way or the other in this yeah. article, but certainly trialists, if they are with you, if they don't want to exploit that's a higher priority than giving an opportunity to everybody to be part of the trial sure they could go that way they could just select accordingly have you thought about whether there's a kantian versus utilitarian conflict here or my hope is that in this case there is a broad umbrella of ethical approaches that would endorse such a trial um utilitarians would say this would save millions of lives. Maybe they would go ahead even without high quality consent. Maybe they would go ahead even if it was awful for the individual, but they would go ahead. Mm -hmm. Kantians or maybe let me discuss two kinds of anti-utilitarians. Mm -hmm. um, most anti-utilitarians and anti-consequentialists, people who are not uh, judging what one should do only based on the goodness or badness of the consequences. Most of them are so-called threshold deontologists. They say, 
in principle, there are certain types of act that you should not perform. Uh, you shouldn't be torturing innocents. You shouldn't be lying. You shouldn't be breaking your promises. Um, but if the consequences were absolutely dramatic, sure, then the threshold can be overridden by these incredibly important consequences. Great. And this so is a very just, common view. And the word, the phrase you used there was threshold deontologist. So a deontologist is somebody who defines their ethics in terms of duties that are absolute or understood as like the guiding principles for life. Is there are different definitions for deontology, but for our purposes right now, maybe the most useful one would be to identify it as just the very same thing as anti-consequentialist. Anybody who says it's not just the consequences. So right. I'm a threshold deontologist if I say it's not just the consequences. When the consequences are, when the stakes are small, you should go with not lying. You should go with not breaking your promise. Right. You shouldn't break a promise just to achieve a minor benefit. Right. Okay, if I can prevent a third world war, if I can save a million lives by breaking a promise, I should probably break the promise. Okay. People like that would say here, I think, because we are talking about very large numbers of lives. Yes. Maybe even they, and that's the most common view among non-consequentialists, even they could agree we should go ahead with the most rapid way right. of examining our vaccines, no matter right. what, in this even, case, because so much is at stake. Right. And, and, the, and the argument there would be the deontology would be you should never knowingly infect somebody with what could well be a deadly disease. But the threshold would be you can knowingly infect them if they give their consent and the consequences could be the saving of thousands or millions of lives. I would put it differently. I would say that the ontological part is something like you should not sacrifice individuals by risking them greatly and not giving them any benefit and not waiting for them to consent and not all the things that we do which are fair and uh, right towards study subjects. Right. You could just do it because it serves some collective purpose, they would say uh, if the collective purpose is urgent enough, then all things considered, despite hating to do it, you should do it. Right. There are the most extreme non-consequentialists who are absolutists. Right. There are very few of these in the history of 20th century, 21st century ethical thought. They would say, should do the right thing by individuals, period. It's not this is this cannot be overridden by some collective benefit. And um, for these people, I would say even they could agree to what we're proposing because we are not doing the wrong thing by individuals. We're doing the right thing by individuals. When you donate money or if you donate a kidney or people don't say, whoa, whoa, donating the kidney is not in your medical interest. You can't do it. If you try to donate your heart, okay, people might say, I'm not sure I'm going to help you do yeah. that one. But my yeah. point is really that this one is, after you think about everything, is much more like donating a kidney or like actually an intervention that is beneficial for you. So absolutely no ethical problem. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, the do donating a kidney is a great example, actually, because I totally get that, right? I mean, I have a friend who donated, who donated, I think, actually half a kidney, as it turned out, to her, to her, a close relative. And yeah, no, that's a great example because it puts you at a slightly heightened risk going forward. But you choose to do it anyway because it's, you think it's the right thing to do for someone you care about. And yeah. in this case, the someone would be like the human race in general. <laughs> yeah. So 
have you heard any counter arguments that give you pause? I've heard the argument that you came up with, uh, John, and that gave me pause uh, about the potential for selection of people whose bad background circumstances come from injustices yeah. and the worry that this is exploiting or this is making them have no other choice. Um, yeah. There are also some practical points. Uh, some people point out that in challenge studies, there are some additional stages in the so you need to you need to take some time to develop the virus in the lab. You need to then do some preliminary studies to identify what is the correct dose of the virus to give to the volunteers, and you need to to create these centers. These are the we didn't mention that it's very important that all of this must be done in uh, very strict isolation centers uh, where. The volunteers couldn't infect others. In fact, that could be part of the attraction. Uh, somebody might think, I have aging parents, they're immunocompromised. I'm quoting actually from some of the emails that people sent me. Yeah. I want, in a very controlled environment, to get rid of this infection. I'm likely yeah. to get infected anyhow. I want to get rid of it with doctors yeah. around me to, to, help, to jump in if I need help, yeah. not out there in the field. Yeah. And in an environment where I absolutely cannot infect my parents. Right. Then I come back home and I know that I can go back to my maybe yeah. central job that I cannot avoid. Yes. And I could not, you know, ever kind of infect them. So we are right. Safe. So that actually like that turns the concept of what we, people have been talking, begun to talk about the immunity passport that becomes mm -hmm. more than just kind of an iPhone app. It's actually a, a way of being in the world. Like once you have that immunity passport, you actually have a level of, safe action with other people because i think about that with my aging parents all the time as well you know that question of like who should be around them and, well uh, you can't join the trial john you're too old i noticed that you said well that's only because you said it at 45 you know <laughs> if you said it at 53 then i'm, I'm golden you you know we always think about what when special circumstances arise like we just heard this debate about the wisconsin primary as mm -hmm. to whether that was an ordinary or an exceptional circumstance in terms of the constitutionality of postponing that election. And we heard the Supreme Court say, oh no, it's, there's nothing extraordinary about it, which seemed like an extraordinary decision <laughs> in light of the pandemic. But the question I wanna ask you is, basically about the status of the exceptional circumstance, because I, I think I could interpret what you're saying in one of two ways. And the first way is you might be saying that pandemics cause exceptional circumstances in which we would actually have to put ordinary ethical laws in abeyance in order to respond to this state of exception. And the second would be that you're saying that under the, the rules of pandemic, let's call it like the rules of war, the change circumstance allows you to kind of revisit your ethical principles and see if the ethical principles result in different actions now, given the way the facts have changed. So are you making an argument for the former, for the sort of state of exception around ethics or for the latter, for that, that our, our same ethics now call for different outcomes based on different circumstances? My take on this is that we can reach to the same old principles of research ethics and find ample justification there. 
This could be done with perfectly informed consent. It could be done uh, without a very problematic risk-benefit ratio. It looks initially like it's an absolute aberration, but once you think about the full picture, it's not. Great. That that that's what I thought you were saying. Thanks. That's very that's very clear. Um, well, Nir, you, you've um, you've sold me, so I'm going to go uh, fix my passport right now, so it looks like I'm 44, <laughs> so that I can sign up. I'm going to buy a wig also. It's going to look a lot like your hair. It'd be great. So I will just uh, say quickly that recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, sound editing by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media and our website. And if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You will, of course, find links to Nier's article, the interview with him in Nature, and various other related material on the, uh, the episode uh, webpage at recallthisbook.org. So uh, check out other uh, recent conversations, including with writers such as Zadie Smith, Shishen Liu, and Samuel Delaney. So Nier, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate it. It's an incredibly busy time for you, I'm sure. So thanks a lot. And thank you all for listening.